like you to turn to Zephaniah. We're going to be in chapter 1. Uh, we'll cover verses 7 through chapter 2, verse 3. And while you're finding that, let me share this with you. Last week in Sacramento, California, the State Board of Education passed a resolution with new guidelines for uh, their teachers. And they include encouraging them to talk about gender identification with their kindergartners. They encourage them to talk about the healthy aspects of self-stimulation to the middle school kids. And they're encouraging them to talk to their LBGT community about how to have safe sex in your teens. This is the world that we're in. And some of these things sound surprising. For some people, they say, well, this is progressive. These are things that we need. But we need to understand the world we're in. We need to understand the time that we're in. So as we, as we look at the Old Testament, as we, we try to assess the value of the Old Testament and understand that it's there for a reason, that God has given us these words for a purpose, it's not just a history book, um, and, and we understand that the, each book of the Old Testament reveals something about the character and nature of God, something about the, the aspects of his plan of redemption for his children. Uh, we come upon books like Zephaniah that seems to have an application to an ancient time, but as we look at it closely, we find that there is contemporary significance to what Zephaniah has to say to God's people. So in the first six verses of Zephaniah, we saw that judgment was coming. And it was going to fall on mankind. No surprise to all of us. We know that that's going to happen. Amen? But it's also going to fall on the people of Judah, on God's people. Because Judah has taken a lot of the world's traits, a lot of the, the habits that the world is doing, they've incorporated them into their, their culture. They've incorporated them into their worship. They're showing up in the temple as we're going to see this morning. God has taken once again a back seat to the lives of his own people. And he's, he's being treated as just another God. But we found out last week that God will not tolerate sin in his creation or in his people that there would be a price to pay for that. Fortunately, we also found out last week that God has given those who believe in him the gift of repentance. Scripture tells us that God grants repentance and that that repentance will restore us into a right relationship with him. Now, Zephaniah is raising up a flag. He's sending up a flare. He's saying, look, this judgment is coming. The people of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, have not yet repented. So they're still wallowing in all of this, and Judah is sounding the alarm. So today's sermon is called The Great Day of the Lord. And, and in this passage, we see the, the crucial indictment that's about to come down on all those who take God casually. It's kind of the high point of Zephaniah. And the truth that we're going to see today, and the, the, the thing that we need to keep in mind as we walk through our world, 
when, with all this crazy stuff going on around us, the truth that we're going to see today is that everyone is subject to the wrath of God. Now let that sink in here for a minute. Let it scare you. Because we have to understand the times that we're in. We have to understand our role as the people of God. We have to understand the position of the church. In the middle of a culture that is really not too different from Zephaniah's time. We've got all the technology and everything, and, and we certainly are a lot more sophisticated than Zephaniah's people, but sometimes I wonder whether or not we've learned the lessons that we're supposed to learn. I think the church understands these things. The real question is, do the people outside the church understand these things? So let's take a look at this passage, the... Uh, it comes in three sections. We have this, uh, an amazing pronouncement in verse 7. Then we have this judgment that comes in verses 8 through 13. And then we have a deferment uh, in chapter 2, verse, verses 1 through 3. So the pronouncement ha- occurs in verse 7. It says, be silent before the Lord God. Okay, now, if God didn't have their attention in those first six verses... He's going to get it right here. So he's saying, listen to what I have to say. Put down your phones. Get off Facebook for a minute. Forget about the news for a minute or two. And pay attention to what I have to say. Let everything come to a halt. Stop whatever you're doing and listen to the word of God. Now, these people would take this seriously. They knew that Sephaniah was a prophet, okay? So they would be eager to hear what he had to say, regardless of what they thought about where God was in their private lives. They would know that this is a moment. So be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Now they hear something important is coming. Now, the day of the Lord appears frequently in the Bible. Um, it, It shows up ten times in the next five verses. So it's something really important, something we need to pay attention to. And the Lord has prepared for this. He's prepared a sacrifice and consecrated for his people. They would understand that this is a time to recognize holiness. This is a time to be set apart for what they've been called to do. So now the alarm bells go up and they're even louder than they were before. And then we see this judgment in verses 8 through 18. And we find out that it comes to two people groups. It's limited to those who believe in God and those who don't. Well, that's everybody. There's nobody sitting on the fence here. Judgment is coming to everybody. So we see the judgment that's going to fall on God's people in verses 8 through 13. And verse 8 says, And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials. Now, the officials he's talking about are the Judean officials. They're the priests. They're the the community leaders. They're the, the people who are in charge. So I will punish the officials and the king's sons. Here's the first hint that there's some real problems there. Uh, He's not talking about the sons of royalty. This is an administrative position 
that the Assyrians had in their governmental structure. It's also a position that the Egyptians had in their societal structure. So the king's sons, those positions that Assyria is using and Egypt is using, are now in Judea. They are now, it's a position for Judah. So Judah is adopting the ways of the world. And the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. Now, when the Jews hear foreign attire, they would, in that time, they would think that of the priestly garments of the pagan priests. So, not only does Judah have these positions like the other countries around them have, but they're wearing the garb of those who worship pagan gods. That's how far things have slipped in Judah. Verse 9 says, on that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. Now, this is a reference to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 5, in that incident where they're, they're encountering the god of Dagon, uh, the Assyrian god. And, the, and it says that the priests, when they entered a house, would jump over the threshold because the superstition that they practiced was if they stepped on the threshold because they were priests, it would open the door of the household to let evil spirits come in. And bad enough that the Assyrians are doing this, the, the priests of Judah are doing it. They're practicing superstition. He's going to do that to all those who leap over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. He's talking about the temple here. The master's house is filled with violence and fraud. Verse 10 says, On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wall from the, a whale from the second quarter, and a loud crash from the from the hills. Now, all of these positions um, back in Nehemiah's Jerusalem are to the north of the city. The fish gate was on the north. The wall was on the north. Uh, the second quarter is to the north of the city. This had significant meaning to the Jews. Jerusalem is built on a series of hills. It's uh, almost completely unapproachable from the south, the west, and the east. There is a large wall to the north and a sloping hill. So the most vulnerable part of the city is the northern part. When the Jews hear that there's trouble coming from the north, they know that there's big trouble coming because it's the only way you can attack Jerusalem. So when they hear that there's going to be a cry in these northern sections, they're saying to themselves, we're going to be under siege. People are going to come against us. And it says... In 11, whale, O inhabitants of the mortar. This is the market area. This is where traders were. So they're, they're going to be whaling, the traders. And then it says, for all the traders. And again, when the Jew would hear this, he would think about Canaanite traders. That's what they were noted for. They learned their negotiating skills from Canaanite traders. The Canaanites became the Phoenicians. And if you know anything about your history, you know the Phoenicians became sailors, and what they were noted for was being merchants and traders. So the Canaanites and the Canaanite practices are in the market. And those people are going to wail. For all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver 
are cut off. So this is a pretty serious situation. Trouble's coming to the city. And it's coming at their weakest point. And it's coming on not the people that are oppressing the city, but upon God's people. And then we see this incredible indictment in verse 12. And this, this is a central indictment of the book. God's angry over his people's apathy. Now listen carefully. He's not angry that they are apathetic about their government or or not angry that they're apathetic about their market. He's not even angry that they're apathetic about their religion, and I put quotation marks around that because what they're practicing is a false religion. What God is angry over is that they're apathetic about him, and everything that they're doing in their lives, everything that's happening in the city is a reflection of that apathy. So he says, at that time, verse 12, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. He said, darkness isn't going to hide you. I'll search it with lamps and I will punish those who are complacent. And the word for complacent here is very graphic. And it has to do with how they ferment wine. So they would crush the grapes and put them and, and the juice in a barrel and then they would let the the, 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 those crushed grapes and the skins and the sediment sink down to the bottom of the barrel and they would skim off the wine and the wine would be good and it would be sweet. But if the, if the wine sat in the barrel too long and was allowed to wallow in that sediment, it would become bitter and it wouldn't be the wine that it was supposed to be. It wasn't even really wine, it would become vinegar. So when he uses the word complacent here, he's saying, you guys are like sour wine. You're not what you're supposed to be. You're wallowing in this filth and this sediment. Things that are supposed to be apart from you. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Now, last time we got together, we talked about this. This idea that God is just one God amongst other gods. And he's not really involved in what they're doing. He kind of set things in motion. And now, now maybe he's still on Sabbath. Maybe he's distracted. Maybe he's really not paying attention. Maybe, maybe he doesn't even care. Their attitude is that God's not really involved in their day-to-day lives so they can do whatever they want to do. Look what happens to these people. Now, he's not talking we got to keep in mind, he's not talking about the Canaanites and the Assyrians and the Egyptians. He's talking about the Hebrews. He's talking about his own people, his precious children. And they've broken God's heart. And here's what's going to happen to them. In verse 13, their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. So for everybody who has allowed this ungodly influence to characterize their life, for everybody who has taken their eyes off God and put them on other things, whatever they've accumulated around them, whether it be their house or their property or their vineyards, and the implication here is for livestock and whatever, it's going to be utterly, absolutely devastated. They're going to lose all that they have. 
Now watch, watch what happened here. So judgment's going to fall on God's people, but not to their destruction. They're going to be challenged on what they thought was important. They're going to be challenged on the things that they've worked so hard to build and now take some pride in. They're going to be challenged on how they worship, on how they live, on how they relate to each other, on how they exist in this holy city of Jerusalem. But not to their destruction. And then we see, starting in verse 14, the judgment that's going to fall on all mankind. Now these are the people apart from God's people. Verse 14 says, the great day of the Lord. Again, ten times in five verses. And, and there's an emphasis here. He's already said the day of the Lord. Now he says the great day of the Lord. And, and it's not necessarily a different day, but he wants, he wants his, the people that are listening to him to hear that this is really, really a big day. The great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast. It's bearing down upon you. God has said he's going to do this, and it is coming. And it's closer than you think. It says the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud here. The warrior cries out because he doesn't know what to do with what's descending upon him. And there's a bitterness to what's going on. It's vile. 15, a day of wrath is that day. And we're talking about God's wrath, not just anger, but we're talking about the wrath of God rolling out of heaven. That can be all-encompassing. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blasts and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty embattlements. There's going to be a siege on the holy city. And there are going to be warriors all over the place, only they're not going to know what to do. And you can see thick smoke and clouds in the sky and rumbling on the earth and everything just being shaken to its core. He says, I will bring, God says, I will bring distress on mankind. So much for the God who loves everybody and everything. So much for the big teddy bear in the sky. So much for the God who just is going to find a way to save everybody. He's going to bring distress on all of mankind so that they shall walk like the blind Why? Because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Ouch. I don't want to be around to see this. This is some nasty stuff. This is some of the strongest language about God's wrath that we find in the Bible. And we have to get our arms around this. Because we can't just relegate this to Zephaniah's time. 
Yes, Zephaniah is talking about something that will happen almost immediately, but he's also talking about something that will happen sometime soon. We'll get to that. Verse 18, it says, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Did you, did you read that? Did you catch what he just said? He said, for a full and sudden end, he will make of all of the inhabitants of the earth. This is terrifying. This should shake us to our core. God has said, here's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to paint a graphic picture for you as to what this is going to look like. And indeed, indeed, Jerusalem will see that day where siege is laid to them and they begin to resort to cannibalism because there's no food. But Zechariah is also pointing towards another day, a day even greater than this, if you can imagine it, He's pointing towards a a time at the end, a time that will be more terrifying than this one, when the entire earth will be consumed. To Jerusalem, it will look like the world is coming to an end. So they're going to get a taste of what the end of time looks like. And we know that this is true because Peter talks of the same day. Peter tells us that 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 day is coming and coming soon as well. If you turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 10, uh, we, we read this. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. He's talking to the church, beloved, he says. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I, wanna, I just want to remind you about these things. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, Zephaniah, And the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing that first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Are we in that day or not? And they will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now he's talking about the fathers of the church. Then there are going to come people that say, you know, you've been saying this for 2,000 years. Nothing's happened yet. Sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? For they will deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Talking about the flood. Noah and his family are the only survivors, the remnant that God uses to rebuild civilization. But then in verse 6, Peter says, And that by means of these, the world has then existed, was yellowed with water and perished. 7. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment 
and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. <coughs> Don't try to create uh, an arithmetic formula here. What Peter's trying to say is God doesn't count time the same way you do. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, Peter says in verse 9, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are all done on it will be exposed. So there's going to come a day when God turns everything into an ashen crisp. What do we do? I mean, if God's going to burn up the entire universe, and he has that right, doesn't he? He's spoken into existence. He can do what he wants with it. Amen? He's going to burn up everything. What happens to us? What happens to those who call upon Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? If we stop reading Zephaniah at the end of chapter 1, we're all in big trouble, especially if it cross-references 2 Peter 3. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Zephaniah gives us hope. Now, we talked last week about it. I, talked, I, I told you that, that uh, there would be repentance. Well, it comes in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. God's people have hope. Now, they have hope, but at the same time, there's a call to action. They don't just sit on their laurels and wait for all this to happen. So we see in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Zephaniah, Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect. He's saying, you guys are, should be embarrassed. You should be ashamed of yourselves. But gather together before all of this begins, before the day passes away like chaff, Zephaniah says. Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Before the fire starts, gather together. And in verse 3, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So the call, the call is to gather together. The call is to come together, and we would know now that he means to come together as the body of Christ, to be the church, to be part of the community that is the body of Christ. Gather together. So, four things he calls us to do. Number one is to gather. Number two is to seek the Lord, to look for him, to study his word, to long to be with him, to emulate who he is, who his character and nature is, now, to do all that, we have to read the Word. We have to know the Word. We can't just can't go out and be nice people. We can't go out and just do good things. We have to do what, what the Lord has modeled for us. So gather together, seek the Lord, seek righteousness. We, we need to yearn for holiness. We need to hunger and thirst for the righteousness that will lead us into a holier walk. Again, 
All of this is going to be based on our knowledge and awareness of what the Word of God says. So we gather, we seek the Lord, we seek righteousness, and we seek humility. We seek humility. We are humble before the Lord. We are humble before the people that are about to be burned to a crisp. We're not better than them. We're not more righteous than them. We're not more holy than them. They are our mission field. And we go to them humbly saying, do you know that there's a bad day coming? That this is all going to burn up. It's all going to end suddenly. And you have time to do what I did before it starts. You can repent. You can confess in the Lord Jesus Christ as your, your Lord and Savior. You can confess your sins, turn away from Him, and turn towards Him. And then you won't be burned. It's our call to action. It's our marching orders. And we're called to do all these things, listen, not so that we can get saved. God's not calling the people of Jerusalem to do all things so that they can get saved. He's calling them to do these things because they are his children. We're called to do these things not so we can get saved, but because we are saved. This is the response to our salvation. This is the response of gratefulness for what God has already started in our lives. These are the things that should manifest themselves in our walk as we walk as a holy people. You see, those who believe are deferred. Now, there's, there's a word from long ago. When there was a draft, there were a list of reasons that you could be deferred. And if you were deferred, you didn't have to join in that battle. I'm not here to argue the merits or the, the lack of merit of being deferred. I'm just saying that that's what deferment meant. You're spared from that battle. And see, that deferment, again, it, it doesn't come because we do all those things that we're called to do. We do all those things that we're called to do because we've been deferred. That's our reaction to the Holy Spirit in us. God calls us to be the body. And that call comes by grace alone not by anything we've done. And our reaction should be to respond to that call. So we've seen this judgment on God's people, but not, not to their destruction. We need to hold on to that. But there is some suffering there. We've seen the judgment on the world. What's going to happen to those that are not God's people? It's all going to be destroyed. It's going to be burned up. And we've seen the deferment that even those that this fire is descending upon can repent and receive the grace of God and be spared of all that. So the people of Zephaniah's time had this promise, but i, I got to be honest with you, I, and I'm sure you heard it, perhaps. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I like that promise. I'm not sure that I want to depend on a promise that perhaps I will be spared of this. 
But that was all Zephaniah had to offer his people. Because God's self-revelation and the revelation of his plan of redemption had not been completely rolled out yet. See, we have the assurance of our salvation. We have the assurance of our, our deferment. And Zephaniah points towards a day when that assurance will come. Zephaniah points towards, towards the cross, brothers and sisters, and the sacrifice that will spare us from that utterly devastating destruction that's about to descend on the world. So we are saved, those of us who call upon him as Lord and Savior. But, but you see, we, we live in this world that takes God far too casually. We live in this world that, that and, and we heard about it last week, entices us to incorporate the ways of the world into our walk. Have some sort of homogenized, worldly religion that compromises the things of God. So we live in a world that, that says it's okay to be complacent with God, to wallow in, in that, that sludge and become vinegar. And maybe the worst thing about that, and, uh, you know, you, you are a smart people. Uh, you are spiritually mature. We, we know these things. None of this is really new. But do our children. Do our children. See, what we started with a little while ago was what's happening in California. Our children are going to grow up in a completely different world than we're in. And the question is, what are we doing to prepare them for it? We can try and shield them from it, but I'm not sure that's successful. We're certainly not called to shield our children from the world. We're called to be in the world, but not of it. We're supposed to be the witnesses. We're supposed to be the testimony to holiness. What happens to our kids when the world is saying, God's really not paying attention. You can be whatever you decide you want to be and do whatever you decide you want to do. And we just don't think that kindergarten is too old to try and figure out what gender you are. You know what that would do to a five-year-old's mind? See, that day is descending on this world. That day is descending on our children. And we're called to come together. We're called to seek the Lord, to seek righteousness, we're called to prepare ourselves and our children for that. Now, we were down at the festival yesterday, and it, it, it was just a great day. It was hot. Uh, I, I loved it. I'm standing there sweating, just enjoying every drop of sweat that's falling off me. Uh, we're handing out cards, and we're giving away cookies and, and lollipops and water, and the kids would come up, and, and they, they were just so excited. Cookies. You know, and, and, and so what we're doing, things we talked about it before, is we're, we're trying to exhibit the grace of God. We're trying to exhibit the love of Jesus Christ. So all of you folks that brought water, all of you folks that brought cookies, we were able to hand those to 
to the children and the adults that come by and say, God loves you. Look, he's blessed us. He wants to bless you too. And here's where you can hear more about this. And here's where you can see more about this at Stories of the Park. And, we, and the kids would come up and they'd grab a lollipop and they'd get a prize. Uh, but we, we did one other thing because we believe that the children are important. We had them sign a little slip of paper and we formed a chain out of those pieces of paper. And we brought that chain here this morning because we want to show you what the future of Warrington looks like. Scott, would you bring that up? This is just the kids that were willing to put their name on a slip of paper. And they've given us an opportunity to do what the church is supposed to do, to witness to them. We did that yesterday. We'll do it again when we go down to stories in the park. But today... Today, we have a golden opportunity to pray for these souls. Pray for their eternal destination. To pray that the Holy Spirit would manifest himself through a pack of two cookies and a bottle of water. And that somehow they would see the love of God. And that somehow, as they age and get a little bit older, they would remember that they saw what grace looks like and turn towards Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you all to stand. And we're just going to spend some time in prayer. And I'm going to ask you, if the Lord leads you, if the Holy Spirit moves you to pray, to pray for these children. We'll spend a few minutes in doing that, and then we'll close. Father, we thank you for each of these precious spirits. We thank you, Father, that every one of them was fearfully and wonderfully formed in the womb by your hands. We thank you that every one of them was made in your image. We thank you, Father, that you see them, you know them, Father, you know their hearts. We pray, Father, you bless them and protect them, preserve, preserve them, Father, that you would reveal yourself to them, Father. We pray that we might be true to the call. Lord, now that we know the extent of the judgment that's coming, Father, we pray that we'd be a people that would raise the flare, that would raise the flag, would send the signal, Father, would say the judgment is coming. It's not too late to turn. Lord, put that, that message on our lips and in our hearts as a people, Father. Um, Lord, I, I thank you for all of the help we had yesterday and all of the, the, the participation that was made, the cookies, the water, the setup. Father, the people handing out cards for the way we work together as a body of Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would bless that by changing the lives of these children and the hundreds that were there. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to stand there in your name and pray that you bless all of this in the precious, holy, and righteous name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a